Gabrielle Thomas is placing membership with Bay Area Church Christ. Gabrielle is, I think, all the way in the back, and it's not, I think Gabrielle's still, yes, she is. Don't want to embarrass her, but I'm not past that. Gabrielle right there. Thank you. Excited about that. I met Gabrielle. I said, have we met before? And she said, yeah, like 20 years ago. I didn't know that her maiden name was Mason, and she was Gwen and Shirley's niece, and then I started connecting some dots, so uh, get to know Gabrielle. Welcome home, by the way. Now, I'm not going to tell you anything new as I begin this lesson when I tell you that we are living in a world of sound bites. And I don't know if it's because people are so busy. I don't know if because there's so much information that we got to absorb. I don't know if there's so little education going around, but we live in a world of sound bites. In fact, if you can't say it in 140 characters or less, it doesn't get said, and it doesn't get read. Whether it's politics, you know, we're in a political year, whether it's news, entertainment, everything seems to be reduced down to just a thought, uh, a soundbite. And I kind of got thinking about this this past week. I was going through my news feed on Facebook, and I realized how many things are posted there that are just kind of soundbites. And so on Wednesday afternoon, I actually started going through my newsfeed, and I wanted to share a couple things with you that, that showed up on my newsfeed on Facebook. Some of them might have been from you. I don't know. They're good, by the way. No, of course, there were some things that were um, kind of spiritual encouragement. That's always good. Martin Luther King had this quote, this, this picture. I just cut and pasted it. Faith is taking the first step even when you can't see the whole staircase. That's encouraging. We need more of that kind of stuff, right? And then there were some things on my news feed that were just kind of to, to make you feel good and to face the day. This was there. Make it today so awesome, yesterday gets jealous. Ha! Take that, yesterday. Today is going to be awesome. I'm going to be awesome. And then there were some very deep thoughts, some really, some really deep stuff that was on my uh, news feed that day. This was there. Today's full moon opens you up to your true soul's energy. I have absolutely no idea what that means. I feel like I should be going, ooh, wow, yeah, that's good. But I don't know what that means. That's just weird. But there was some good things, too. I, I love this one. I actually did love this one. You can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. That is awesome. In fact, I'm going to start saying that. I'm going to start saying it so much that you think I came up with it. Can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And then there's some, you know, some facts, some scientific things that were on my feed that day. Um, I'm, I'm a scientific guy. I like science. Just out of the blue, this showed up. Females with an A in their first name are said to be more beautiful, intelligent, and live longer. That's science. And I like that fact because I am married to a woman who has not one, but two A's in her first name. So my wife is twice as beautiful, twice as intelligent, and will live twice as long as your wife. Don't hate me for that. It's science. It was on the Internet. So you know it's true. And then there's always some things on there that, that kind of make you nod and go, yeah. That's right. And this, this was on my feed last Wednesday afternoon. No, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally 
want you to follow me. I thought, you know, that's pretty good, really. We're talking about Jesus today. And we're talking about Jesus through the lens of what I keep calling the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. That uh, simple statement of fact that it's the greatest sermon ever preached, I think, is, is maybe one of our problems as we think about and talk about and consider the Sermon on the Mount. I think one of our problems is we know this section of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We know it so well. And we are so familiar with it. I think we take it for granted. I think we fail to realize how powerful those three chapters really are and what Jesus was saying on the side of the hill that day. Sometimes uh, we, we, we were so familiar, we, we never read it straight through, by the way. We never read it from chapter 5 through the end of chapter 7. We've seen to just kind of reduce it to nothing but a bunch of sound bites. And by the way, I'll have to confess, I'm kind of doing that today. But it's more than that. It's not a collection of great bumper sticker slogans. But a lot of people think that's kind of what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath hill that day. A lot of people think Jesus was just kind of a, a spiritual sage who was going around and dispensing these random but really great thoughts to people. But as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that's not what Jesus is about. And that's certainly not what Jesus is doing. It's not like he's working for Hallmark cards and trying to come up with a few taglines. Jesus is putting together some really powerful and significant thoughts here. Remember last week we talked about the Beatitudes. And I shared with you that my contention was that Jesus begins this sermon, this lesson, this, this conversation by talking about being blessed. And, and I think he's trying to give those people and give us a kingdom focus because he was talking to people who were poor in spirit. And he was surrounded by people who were mourning. And he was surrounded by people who were meek. And you remember last week I said I thought that the attitude, the main point of the attitude was Jesus telling all these people who were really kind of broken that you haven't missed your chance. Regardless of where you are or what you've been through, you have not missed your chance at this kingdom life. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, among other things, conveys a very deep, very life-changing, very history-altering message. It was designed to, to launch a movement. That's really what I think Jesus is doing here. He's launching a movement. This isn't some little, again, some little groupings of esteem builders. We don't realize it because it's so familiar to us. But what Jesus is doing and the Sermon on the Mount is so radical. And it is so countercultural. And it's a little bit dangerous. And for us to really understand this, and I've said this the last couple of weeks, you've got to go back. You've got to back up and take a look at some things that happened in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is all talking about and pointing to Jesus. And we're going to start all the way back in the book of Genesis, actually a promise that God made to a guy by the name of Abram. We know him better as Abraham, and we know the promise pretty well as also. It's in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
I'm sitting over here with my wife as, as Daryl is making his comments about the offering. And I'm, I, in fact, I leaned over and he said, I, I said to Martha, my work here is done. He just preached my sermon. Now, he's talking about being blessed to be a blessing. He mentioned that on Wednesday night, his class was talking about being blessed to be a blessing. You referenced something that was said yesterday during the workshop about being blessed to be a blessing. Maybe the Holy Spirit's trying to tell us something. Maybe God's trying to get our attention as we keep coming up with this idea. God makes this promise to Abraham. He tells him in no uncertain terms, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. But this blessing isn't just for you. It's for everyone. In fact, God tells Abraham, all people, all nations are going to be blessed through you. Abraham, you're going to be kind of a blessing transmitter in this whole thing. You'll be blessed to be a blessing. Now, fast forward up to today, 2016. Anyone in here blessed? Now, you take a look around at your, your life and your family and your job and you know, your health, your circumstances. Anybody feel like you know, maybe you have some things that you really probably don't deserve? that God has been very, very good to you? They feel blessed today? Somebody say amen? Yes? Absolutely? Why? Why are you blessed? You're blessed to be a blessing. It's not just for you. It's for others as well. Last week, talking about the Beatitudes, the blessings, Jesus tells these people who are poor in spirit, and he tells these people who are mournful, he tells these people who are broken in so many ways, you are blessed. And then he tells them what they're supposed to do with those blessings, how they're supposed to respond to those blessings. And he starts using some images to help us understand this. And the first image that he uses is salt. He says in verse 13 of chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. Now, that sounds a little bit odd to us, doesn't it? We know we're quoting Scripture when we say, you're the salt of the earth, because no one would say today, well, you're the salt of the earth, unless they're being biblical. But it wasn't odd to the group that Jesus was talking to. To us, it would be odd because for us, salt is plentiful, and it's cheap. It's always on the table in the little white shaker. To those people, salt wasn't optional. Salt was valuable. Salt had tremendous worth. You've all heard the sermons about the characteristics of salt. How it's a preservative. It keeps things from rotting and decaying. How it's a flavor additive. Things are better when you add salt. How it makes you thirsty. Or maybe thirsty for righteousness. You've all heard that sermon. But when Jesus told those people on the hillside, you're the salt of the earth, that's not the bullet points that they started coming up with. They would have thought back to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, God says, It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. Again, odd choice of words. What's God talking about? A covenant of salt. Because God understood that those people knew that salt was valuable. Salt was a precious commodity. Wars were fought over salt. You know that the Latin term for salary comes from salt because Roman soldiers were paid sometimes in salt as, as a salary. So God says, I will make with you a covenant of salt. He says it a couple times in the Old Testament, by the way. Because in the world there's rot. 
and there's corruption, and there's decay, there's selfishness. So many things are spoiled and spoiling. But Jesus says that this movement, and this is really exciting, I'm going to have a covenant of salt, and I'm going to use you to start doing something about the world that's decaying, and start doing something about the condition of the, of the world. And so, as you meet people, your freshness, your, your hope, your, your joy, your salt to people, you're making things better. Isn't that what we're called to do as Christians? Aren't we supposed to make things better? I mean, if we're showing Jesus, shouldn't that improve our situation? The, the, you know, the atmosphere we find ourselves in? And then, then he gives us another image kind of reinforce this whole idea. Verse 14. You're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Hit the pause button for just a second. I want you to think about some of the greatest inventions in the past 50 years. In other words, some of the greatest inventions in my lifetime. If not at least inventions, things that were kind of introduced. And I got to thinking about this. What are the greatest inventions since I've been alive? And I got, you know, what are those things? Um, microwave oven. I remember our first microwave oven. I was in junior high. I was fascinated by it. Anytime you can take a hot pocket from frozen to upset stomach in three minutes, that's a neat thing. Not too long ago, the DVR. Genius. In my lifetime, they started using disposable diapers. Why did it take tens of thousands of years for somebody to come up with that idea? A throwaway diaper. But then there are some inventions that, that really I thought were pretty neat that never did quite catch hold. How many of you remember the clapper? Anybody? Yeah. Remember it was a little device you plugged into the wall and then you could plug anything else into it. And if you wanted to turn it on, you clapped twice and it turned on. Clapped twice again and it turned off. You remember the jingle for that commercial? Clap on, clap off, clap on, clap off, the clapper. Oh. Yeah, that'll be stuck in your head now. And the commercial was this little old lady laying in bed, reading a book. She closes the book, she puts it on the nightstand, she takes her glasses off and realizes, oh no, the lamp is still on. I'm going to have to get up and walk across the room and turn the lamp off. And then she smiles, like, oh, no, I don't. <laughs> and darkness falls over the room. I thought the clapper was such a neat thing, it kind of went the way of the garden weasel. No, I don't know. This doesn't have anything to do with my lesson, but did anyone in here ever own a clapper? No. <laughs> The champs. Why, why does that not surprise me? In Matthew chapter 5, you're going to have to all ask them how it works still. You know. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is telling these people something they already know. Darkness is in the world. There's just a lot of darkness in the world. You can't just clap your hands and make it go away. The world is a dark place. It's always been a dark place. And the world desperately needs someone to shine a light into that darkness. 
And again, you've got to go back to the Old Testament. Back to Isaiah chapter 42. The beginning of Isaiah chapter 42 is talking about the coming of the Messiah. But when you get to verse 6, we read this. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. There's that word covenant again. And there's that word light again. And here's what's interesting in Isaiah chapter 42, talking about it being a light for who? A light for the Gentiles. Remember, God promised Abraham, all nations in the earth will be blessed through you. This isn't some insider deal. This isn't just for the Jews. This isn't some secret club. Everybody is going to be blessed through the promise. And then the same language is going to be used just a couple chapters later in Isaiah chapter 49. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the world. God understands that this is a dark place. And God understands that people are going to get confused. And people are, are, are going to get, be misled. And there's going to be sin. God said, I want you to be truth. And I want you to be light. Light to who? Here in chapter 49, it says, light to the Gentiles. I want you to be a light for everyone, the entire world. And that's always been God's vision for Israel. Now you get to the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. That's Jesus' vision for us. To be a light to the world. A covenant of salt. A covenant of light. Again, think about what's going on culturally as Jesus is talking, as Jesus is preaching this Sermon on the Mount. Rome is in charge. The Rome and, and the Jews are worlds apart. In fact, the Jews themselves are worlds apart. you got the zealots. They hated Rome. Rome hated them. Rome considered zealots nothing less than terrorists. You had the Sadducees. They'd kind of given up on the whole kingdom kind of thing. They were just cozying up with the Romans whenever they could. You had the Pharisees. They were the ones who put up these huge walls and these huge obstacles between themselves and all the other unclean sinners who, who couldn't keep the rules as well as they were. So you have all these different groups... So Jesus begins his ministry in the middle of this cauldron of society. Rome thought they owned the world. The zealots wanted to rule the world. The Sadducees decided to be like the world. The Pharisees wanted to remove themselves from the world, and nobody, and I mean nobody, is talking about blessing the world. That's not on anybody's radar. That's not anyone's agenda. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You have been blessed to bless others. Jesus looks at this crowd of kind of misfits that we talked about last week. All these people who are struggling, the poor in spirit and those who are mourning, he said, you're blessed. First thing out of his mouth, you're blessed. You're blessed. This is for you. And you, and you, and you, and you. You're all blessed. Good news. The blessing's for you. But here's the deal. You're blessed to be a blessing. You're blessed to be salt and light. 
Jesus isn't telling this, you know, isn't speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, and he doesn't stop at the end of what we call chapter, or verse 12. He doesn't stop and say, okay, what I just said, that's going to be the Beatitudes one day. Okay? And then someday when you get a Bible, there's going to be a, a verse that starts next. And there's going to be a little paragraph break, and it might even have a heading that says salt and light. And now I'm going to begin to talk about something else. No. Jesus is just talking. He's just sharing. He hasn't finished up his thought that we call the Beatitudes when he gets to salt and light. He's right in the middle of it. He said, you have been blessed. Now what do you do with those blessings? Here's what you do with the blessings. You go and you be salt and you be light. And these people who are listening to Jesus, they get it. They understand what he's saying. I'm not sure they understood that he was talking about them, though. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You've got to be talking about the Romans, right? Because they got all the wealth. Or you've got to be talking about the zealots, because they, they got all the passion. You've got to be talking about the Sadducees, because they got all the connections. You've got to be talking about the Pharisees, because they're the ones who keep the rules so well. And Jesus says, no. No, I'm talking about you. This is for you. Those of you who are poor in spirit, those of you who are mourned, those of you who are struggling, those of you who are messed up, you're the salt. You're the light. Jesus says, I'm talking about a movement here. I'm talking about something radical. And here's how it's going to work. I'm going to love them. Jesus says, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love everybody. I'm going to love the Roman centurions. Wait and see what I do. A zealot is going to be one of my most effective disciples. I'm going to love the Sadducees. And I'm going to love the Pharisees. I'm going to love the Jews. I'm going to love the Gentiles. I'm going to love the men. I'm going to love the women. I'm going to love the saints. I'm going to love the sinners. Especially the sinners. Jesus says, I'm going to love everybody. And you know what will happen? Here's what will happen. A lot of them, in fact, most of them, they're not going to get it. In fact, they're going to fight me. And they're going to resist me. And they're going to make up things about me. And, and they're going to imprison me. And they're going to uh, persecute me. And eventually they're going to kill me. And then you know what? i got a plan. i got a kingdom plan. He says, then the next step is you, you little ragtag group of spiritually hurting and, and, and poor in spirit. You're going to love them too. You're going to love everybody. And Jesus says, you know what's going to happen? They're going to fight you. And they're going to resist you. And they're going to make up things about you. And they're going to persecute you. And they're going to imprison you. And some of you, they're going to kill but you know what you do when that happens? You love them more. Doesn't that sound like a great plan? Who wants to be a part of that plan? Who wants to get on board with that? And of course, most people didn't. Most people wouldn't. Most people don't. But a few people saw what Jesus was saying and got a sense of what Jesus was doing, this movement that he was talking about. And a few people realized, yeah, it's, it's radical. And it's countercultural. And it's dangerous. But boy, there's power here.
there's a tremendous amount of power. And there were some people that bought in to what Jesus was saying. There's people sitting on the side of the hill. They knew that, that the, the religious people, the people who would always look down their nose at them, the people who were so happy about being able to, to keep the rules right and we're right and, and you're wrong, they knew it was all about how they looked. They knew it was all about their appearance and, and how well they could keep the letter of the law. Then Jesus comes along and says, you know, it's not so much about the law. I'm not, I'm not talking about a new law here. I'm talking about the heart. I'm talking about loving God. And I'm talking about loving Jesus. And I'm talking about loving each other. I'm talking about a new movement. I'm talking about a kingdom where everything's different, where everything's better. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is comparing kingdom life to the life that they're used to. And he uses a couple examples of this in the Gospels, by the way. Luke chapter 14, he's attending a banquet. And he notices that people are kind of scrambling for the best seats. And there's kind of a pecking order to how people sit. And Luke records it this way in Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Okay, here it is. Clearly. Jesus is teaching you are never to invite your family to dinner. Some of you have been looking for this verse all your life. Here you go. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Finally. Finally something I can use, right? Is that what Jesus is teaching? Never invite your family to dinner? No. What Jesus is saying is most people usually look out for number one. And most people will do good to people who think they will get good in return. You know, we'll be kind to people that we think might be kind to re in return to us. We will give to people who, who we might expect to get something from. But Jesus says, not in the kingdom. It's not the way it's going to be in the kingdom. In the kingdom, we're going to do good for people who would never be able to repay us. We're going to do good for good's sake. We're going to bless people. In fact, you're going to find out that the blessing is going to be when you bless others. That's how you're going to find fulfillment. And that's how you're going to find true joy. Sometimes Jesus says, you know, in the kingdom we'll throw a banquet and we'll invite people that could never repay us. And again, Jesus is not teaching you can never invite your family to dinner. And he's not teaching you have to always invite poor people to a dinner if you have one. No. What Jesus is teaching is this is about loving God. It's about loving people. It's about a new movement. Here's another one. It's out of the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but that's okay. Chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, what's Jesus teaching here? Is he teaching we should just stand still and let people wail away on us? No, of course not. You know, that, that's kind of life outside the kingdom. Life outside the kingdom is eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You strike me, I'm going to strike you back, but I'll do it harder. You pull a knife, I'll pull a gun. You put one of mine in the hospital, I'll put one of yours in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. It was actually Sean Connery. But you get the idea. 
Jesus is contrasting that kind of thought with what he is trying to introduce here. Jesus says, not in the kingdom. We're not going to be that way in the kingdom. Now, we've got to apply a little bit of wisdom here. But what Jesus is saying, in the kingdom, revenge is not going to have the last word. Kingdom-focused people are not going to be defined by hatred and anger and revenge. Not in the kingdom. Then he says in verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And again, this was not some hypothetical situation. This was a law. There was a law in place and everybody knew the law. A Roman soldier could compel a Jew to carry his heavy pack one mile. How do you think the zealots in the crowd that day in the Sermon on the Mount, how do you think they felt about that law? Remember, they hated the Romans. Could you imagine Jesus telling the zealots, hey, if a Roman soldier wants you to carry his pack two miles, you do it. In fact, here's what you do. When you get to the end of one mile, you tell that soldier, you know what? I don't have much going on today. I could rearrange my schedule a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and take this second mile for you. How do you think the zealots would have accepted that teaching? Again, is Jesus teaching you have to do twice whatever anybody asks you to do? No, that's not what he's teaching. What he's teaching is, you know, everybody has enemies. And the world's mindset is, well, let's stick it to our enemies. And Jesus is saying, what if we, what if we loved our enemies? What if we served our enemies? And again, how do you accomplish that? By being salt and light. By being the salt of the earth. By being the light of the world. Regardless of how insignificant you might feel, regardless of how poor in spirit you might consider yourself to be, how mournful, how meek you might be, God has hardwired us to be salt and light. And that makes all of us really important members of the kingdom. Tony Campola, a very well-known writer, talks about a season in their married life when his wife was a stay-at-home mom. She was raising her two small children. And she'd meet people and they'd ask her what she did and she felt always a little bit insignificant when she said, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom. She realized what an important job that was and how vital that was to their family and the well-being of their children. She was, she was really proud of it. But she, was, she was almost embarrassed to, to tell people that. So she came up with a different answer. When she was a party or something, people asked her what she did for a living. Here was her new answer. I am socializing two homo sapiens under the dominant values of the Christian tradition so that they can become agents for the transformation of the social order into a kind of eschatological utopia that God has willed from the beginning of creation. What do you do? And she said, people would say like, well, I'm just a doctor. <laughs> I'm just a lawyer. Uh, and kind of slink away. She realizes the value of being salt and light to everyone, including our children. I don't know what kind of resume you have built. And I don't know what kind of income you have, but if you are a kingdom-focused follower of Jesus, I know what your job description is. Our job description is to be salt and to be light. Wherever we are, to whoever we come in contact with. When we work, when we go to school, when we're at the gym, when we're out with our friends, when, when we meet someone, when we shake their hand, when we touch, when we feel, when we hug, when we say, you matter. 
When we tell people Jesus loves you, our job description is to be salt and light. This movement that Jesus started, this, this movement that He knew would ultimately cost Him His life. You know, civilizations and companies and nations have come and gone since He started this movement, but the movement continues. And now it's our turn. It's our turn to be part of the movement. And it's our turn to point people to Jesus. And it's our turn to be salt and to be light in a very dark world. So what are you waiting for? Who are you being salt to? Who are you being light for? Where are you letting your light shine? As a family, if we can help you in any way, come to the front and we'll do our very, very best. Let's stand and sing.